Yeah, well, though, I, I presumed the way I presumed I would be very heavily edited. <laughs> Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. Living the Dream is an irregularly published anti-capitalist podcast from Brisbane. Hi, you're listening to Living the Dream, and this is part two of our interview with my interview with Tanya Cerizier on uh, Me Too, feminism, and the politics around intimate gender and sexual violence. At the end of episode one, uh, we finished with Tanya talking about the complicated relationship that often exists between feminist politics around um, these issues and the state and the repressive functions of the police and prisons. And we're going to continue with that now. Just a reminder that this is an episode where we are discussing sexual violence and so um, make a choice about if that's the kind of show that um, you are okay to listen with or if you find maybe it's too distressing and you can uh, catch one of our other shows in the future. Is this happening? Like, is there, is there this kind of um, tactical or strategic alliance between kind of feminist politics around sexual violence and the state because extra parliamentary or street feminist activity recedes from the 70s? Yeah, definitely. I mean, a lot of people would say that. Um, I think... I think it's not entirely that simple. I mean, I think that actually, as you said, I mean, there were a lot of projects that feminists engaged in response to sexual violence. So, you know, at the same time you have rape law reform projects, you've got the establishment of things like crisis centres, you know, rape crisis centres, domestic violence centres and shelters. Um, And you do with them definitely, and there's been a lot of work that's happened on them. You know, they definitely over the 80s get more and more incorporated into the state in part because there isn't the social movement to um, support them as autonomous entities, you know. Um, But I think that, I think that even when you still had um, a big and, you know, vibrant feminist activism in the 70s, as I said, this was controversial. But, I mean, there were people campaigning for things like, you know, harsher sentences for things like, um, you know, higher rates of conviction. And I think, you know, it's still, I mean, it's and it's still an issue. So I suppose, I guess I would say that what you said is true to an extent and it's an important fact. But the the thing that I think is important to also acknowledge is that we still, as feminists, struggle with, you know, and I suppose the language of today, what it would mean to have a sexual violence politics that's also abolitionist, you know, because we still, and even, you know, very, and by that I mean prison abolitionist, or is about, you know, opposing the criminal justice system. Because, you know, when we talk about the way that society, you know, enables, excuses, normalizes rape, I mean, one of the main reference points we have for that is the criminal justice system. You know, we talk about low conviction rates, we talk about rates of attrition, you know, and 
the reality is that that is about the normalization, you know, and the enabling of sexual violence. The question then becomes a much more difficult question, which is, you know, in the society that we live in, how do you, you know, talk, I suppose prevention is a little bit different, but how do you talk about having a society that refuses to, you know, accept, to normalize, to minimize sexual violence that isn't tied to a carceral politics? And, and there are really amazing examples of people doing work around that, you know, kind of, you know, um, abolitionist and um, feminist collectives in particularly in the US, but also elsewhere. I mean, a famous one is critical resistance. But at a broad level, it's still a difficult question. I think it's a question that has been a big challenge for feminism. So I think, you know, I think you're right that there's an increasing turn to the state and to accepting criminal justice system um, responses as taken for granted in the 1980s when you see a retreat from a really kind of, you know, politically active and radical feminism. But there's also a sense in which that as a political question, you know, has been and remains a political challenge for feminism, even when it is, you know, very vibrant and radical and is it does that of, make sense? Yeah, it does. I wonder if it's one of those things where it's a bit kind of unfair to kind of like say, okay, you know, emancipatory feminist politics give us an abolitionist alternative because mm. like that's actually only something that could be developed through the messy process of a social movement involving tens if not hundreds of thousands of people and like multiple experiments, you know, like otherwise what do you do? You sit down and you make a fictional court system on the back of an envelope. <laughs> no, no, exactly, exactly. And I mean, you know, and it's, and that's the thing. I mean, I'm not trying to, and, and I but, suppose but, this is where, you know, sometimes you get that, you know, in terms of debates that people have within feminism, where for people like me who would be more, you know, critical, people are like, well, you know, it's unfair or there's not a solution or you're not coming up with solutions. I think that's perfectly true. I mean, but the question, and this is why, you know, I was trying to frame it as a problem or a difficulty because the question is, you know, in this society that we have, you know, to the extent that we are going to, um, you know, try to develop a politics, make, you know, demands, campaign for things, what is your orientation to the criminal justice system when still the primary mechanism that you have for responding to you know the harms of sexual violence is criminalization and punishment in the criminal justice system i mean it's a very it's just it's just a really difficult question mm. i think because i guess i even get on the same scale where you know like at the moment very much like some some idea of formalizing consent increasingly legalistically is posed as the solution to um to sexual violence and then if you kind of raise the critique people say well oh well what's the alternative and then all i can do is go well i don't know but you should read tanya's article it's very interesting <laughs> you know like when when what people are saying well actually this is an immediate problem now <laughs> that people are living in and the appeal of some kind of like okay when you go to a university we'll make sure that everyone who has sexual relations signs a contract that says this is what you agree to do in this encounter, you know, that, that just seems immediate and practical and can be enforceable by a university with the state behind it. And the the critiques have that problem of, like, I feel that 
with most of the things that I say is that it shows it goes well that's inadequate but there's nothing kind of concrete and immediate that can respond to it now yeah I mean and people often say that particularly about you know um the consent stuff and it's you know it's funny as people will be like yes yes you know I really agree with you but um but if you don't have an alternative you know I'm still going to support this and since, um, since we're talking it talking about it do you want to um kind of quickly summarize the kind of work you have done that is a critique of consent because I still think some you know we can't assume that people are familiar with the critique of consent <laughs> you mean not all your risk listeners will have you know read my entire back catalogue of everything I've ever published look just because I so. send it all out to them as a pdf <laughs> and say read before listening I can't enforce that <laughs> um, um okay well I think I mean I think there's a lot you will not be surprised to learn. I think there's a lot that you can say critically about <laughs> consent. Um, I suppose I suppose the first thing to say is because sometimes people say this is that as a really kind of you know basic basic poor kind of baseline, consent does signal you know anything that falls below this is a problem, you know is if you want to put it that way a crime you know and it does that to a certain extent all right the problem that um i'm trying to think where to start all right so the problem with consent as it's original so i talked about no means no one of the problems with this is that you know, and we touched very briefly at the beginning about talking about kind of, you know, all the kind of gendered normative um, interactions that go around sex, is it basically imagines, you know, its its image of sex is a heterosexual encounter, you know, where a man is trying to have sex and a woman effectively acts as what people sometimes call a gatekeeper, you know. So consent legally in other areas besides sex is its legal function is to make something that would otherwise be harmful or illegal okay. So, you know, when you consent to get a tattoo, that makes it legal for someone to stick a needle with toxic ink in it into your skin, right? Because if you didn't consent, it would be a really bad thing to do. It would be assault. So, yeah, it would be assault, right? And um, so in terms of thinking about kind of, you know, a politics of sex, I suppose, what the consent model does is imagine a situation in which, you know, you have, yes, men who want to have sex and women who, you know, essentially don't or aren't the active participant and say say yes or no. All right. So that's that's one problem, that it reproduces and kind of, you know, what's the word? It, um, you know, freezes or reifies the very kind of, you know, normative gendered relations that makes sexual violence such a problem in the first place. Um, now, the other thing is that in terms of thinking about it legally is it's always so easily turned around. So when you have the kind of no means no requirement, which is you know what people want to move away from with enthusiastic consent, is you then can have this thing where you go not just to court but also to you know the court of public opinion or whatever you want to call it, and people are like, oh, well, you know, she never said no. And if she didn't say no, then she must have been consenting or it's reasonable to believe that she was consenting. Now, when you move from this idea of no means no to yes means yes, 
you keep this very, and it's funny because, yeah, you talked about contracts. I mean, you keep this very, in a sense, contractual idea of sex, which I think, you know, to me is quite neoliberal, that you can imagine a sexual encounter in terms of a contract. And, you know, and there are now, like, numerous apps and actually, like, contracts that people can download and sign and things before they have sex. And on the one level... That makes me feel very old. Well, but it's not only about being old. I mean, on, on one level, you know, do we want, is our vision of a better sexuality one modelled on kind of, you know, market logics, essentially, and kind of contractual legal logics, you know, it's not, I mean, uh, you know, and I think I think most people would accept this, it's not in any way as a kind of utopian or, to my mind, you know, political vision of changing sex. The other side of that would be to say, well, you know, there's so many potential harms and whatever that even if it's not a perfect kind of model, at least it's better than not having it, you know, so maybe that's that kind of imposition of contractual relations is something that we have to put up with, you know, if we're going to um, put these protective mechanisms in place. But to my mind, the problem with if the affirmative consent, some of the problems are, it still doesn't change really that kind of um, essentially heteronormative model that there's someone asking the question and someone else responding. And people say that it can be reciprocal, but legally, I mean, legally, that doesn't work with consent. I mean, consent's not really a reciprocal term or concept. You know, that's not the kind of work it does. I mean, it's about one person allowing another person to do something to them is what consent does. So there's that. Whether it's saying no or whether it's saying yes, it's still, you know, really built on that framework. And you can kind of, you know, be like, oh, well, it goes one person does something and then one person does another thing. And then, but that, I mean, that's not actually a dialogue or an interaction. You know, we don't need any kind of, you know, in sex, like it's your turn to do something and my turn to say yes or no. It's that, your that, kind of, to- that kind of fits with a very kind of like pornified vision of sex, doesn't it? Where yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Like the, That's like what, you ha- what you have is just like a whole series of like default, like options on a checklist and you can just pick those. Yeah. And I mean, and that's another thing I think that um, – you know, this idea of unknowability um, is an, an impossibility, you know. So so the, the other basic kind of legal problem that I'll say is, you know, this thing of it being able to be turned around is it can still very much be turned around on people, on, you know, women, if well, that's what we're talking about, in the same way that you can say, well, you know, you didn't say no. Um, you know, I was talking before about social pressures and things. I mean, there's no reason that the same social pressures that would lead me, for instance, in a sexual situation not to say no are not going to be the same social pressures that are going to lead me in a sexual situation to say yes. Yes. You know? That's a if, um, yeah, brilliant point. Like, cause if actually it doesn't, it doesn't address or eradicate power. I mean, people are quite capable. It has this really weird idea of language. It's almost like, you know, people are incapable of, like, saying things. But, you know, like I said with the tea – you know, you can say, yes, I would love a cup of tea when you don't want one. It's quite easy to say yes to having sex that you don't want. I mean, you know, at another level, it's very, these kind of apps and contracts are just a nightmare um, because a lot of the time they're framed and sold. You know, their audience is actually, particularly the apps, is men who are worried about, you know, false allegations, as they put it. And so they want to film a woman saying yes to them before they start having sex. Now, 
you know, at, at, it's blowing. horrific. It's actually horrific because apart from anything else, you know, you can't just say yes and sign a contract or go on an app and then that doesn't allow someone to do whatever, you know, whatever they yeah. want. I mean, it's, you know, and, and I know that that's not most people's model of enthusiastic consent. You know, people say it needs to be ongoing. It needs to be all these things. But um, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't address those power relations. And, you know, in terms of an actual legal solution, I think it's a nightmare in that way. And that, you know, what exactly did someone say yes to? You know, I thought she was saying yes to this, but actually she was only saying, I mean, because then it's still, you know, the court is still going to have to adjudicate based in the way that it already does, essentially on a bunch of kind of sexist stereotypes, you know, where it says, well, you know, obviously anyone would have thought when you said yes here that you also meant yes here. I mean, so I think it doesn't, I mean, just talking about the criminal justice system, it doesn't solve the problem of the criminal justice system at all because, you know, the problem is the courts interpret what's reasonable and narratives around um, sex in a very sexist way. In terms of, you know, kind of as a model of behaviour, you know, which is the other thing, not thinking about the criminal justice system, you know, yes, I think um, I think the idea that, you know, all sex is desired and wanted is, um, you know, is is important, <laughs> is important at one level. Um, but as I say, I mean, I don't think having a kind of yes means yes model means that that's going to happen. Um, and, you know, and it doesn't even other things like, you know, how intoxicated can you be to know that you really mean yes when you say yes? And, you know, it leaves unanswered so many questions. Um, and the other question is, you know, and you talked about the kind of porn list of like predefined things. The other question is, you know, I think if we can think about sex and sexuality politically and socially and actually have a utopian vision, which is obviously a long way from where we are now, um, then there does need to be room, and I've said this before, I mean, there needs to be room for new experiences. I mean, there needs to be room for what do you do when actually you might not be enthusiastic, you might be ambivalent, you know, like if you're trying something, there's no reason that if you're trying something sexual for the first time, like anything else, I mean, I don't know how explicit how, what rating is, but you know, I don't know, like say you're thinking about trying anal sex, like being a receptive partner in terms of anal sex for the first time, you know, you may actually be nervous, you might be unsure, but you still might want to do it. You know, this this idea of like enthusiasm as well, I think, is a kind of um, it's a difficult concept when you really think about it. I mean, in the sense that what is it that makes a sexual encounter good or bad? I mean, enthusiasm is definitely something that touches on, you know, certain elements, but but it doesn't cover everything and it doesn't, you know. It doesn't even cover, I think, that idea of like sexual exploration, um, because how can you be enthusiastic about something if you don't know where you're going to end up? Which is, you know, one of the things that I do think politically, not just in sex, but in other areas of life, we need to be open and allow for. Um, I don't think it's something that's not something the criminal justice system should be, you know, um, regulating. But mm. I do think that even as we're talking about, you know, ways to prevent the harms of sex, like, you know, 
there is that other question, which is, you know, I suppose the utopian horizon, like the sex that we want to have, you know, the best sex that we could be having. I mean, is is a wider question. And again, it comes back to that idea of sex being social is, um, you know, how do we live the lives that we want to be living as a collective political project? Um, and for me, I don't really see enthusiastic consent as part of that. I mean, you know, people, the other side of it is there's all these things that people say, you know, um, consent is sexy, consent is hot, you know, hearing someone say yes, yes, yes is, I mean, actually as, you know, as a, as a queer scholar and activist, I'm very, very suspicious of anything that makes a kind of normative statement that says one particular thing is sexy yeah, totally. as opposed to other things. You know, like it can be for some people, but, you know, it's not always and it can obviously be awkward and it can just be boring. I mean, you know, and sex can be all those things, too. So, um, yeah, so I suppose that's a lot of reasons that I'm not a big fan of consent. I don't I suppose of all the things that it's claimed to do, I don't think it does any of them particularly well. Because two things really jump out, jump out to me like. One is, um, you know, I think with the rest of the radical project, whatever that is, is all about trying to burst the idea that we are just these kind of neutral, equal individuals that engage in contracts, right? Like the the, yeah. the critique of capital of capitalism involves the critique of some kind of liberal individual who goes around making contracts in some blank space. So it's very weird that we think we can have the critique out there, but we think this will work perfectly in the most intimate parts of our lives. And I guess the, the other part is uh, maybe it's from a Judith Butler essay about consent, um, where they talk about actually that it kind of because it, it fixes at the that there is this individual who engages in this contractual relationship yeah. it like fixes that person right but actually part of the reason i think human beings want intimate and sexual relationships is that they actually kind of they unstitch us um mm. you know they, yeah. they transform and unsettle us and so that yeah exactly. you know, like so how can you maintain this idea of like i am this and also the idea that like I'm going to sound very old. The idea that we know our desires as well, mm. you know, that like we, we can have this, you know, when you were talking about the cup of tea before and saying, you know, of course, you know, like we often uh, ask, accept things that we don't really want. Like we do that to ourselves, right? Like we narrate yeah, yeah. to ourselves what we think our desires and who we are are, which might be in like a profound <laughs> disjunction um, from like what, from what else is going on with, with inside us. Oh, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think, yeah, you know, most people would be very willing, I think, to accept the fact in many areas of their life, you know, they don't know exactly what they want or, yeah, what they thought they wanted, they didn't want. I mean, and this is the thing that it, you know, it calls into being this particular kind of subject, which, you know, I think we need to ask ourselves, you know, to get, I suppose, yes, to continue in the kind of being very Butlerian. It calls into being a particular kind of subject, you know, that we need to ask, is that the kind of subject that we actually aspire or want to be? Um, and the other side of that is, you know, as with the kind of no means no, whenever you call into being this particular kind of model subject, you're always setting people up to fail in the sense of not, you know, achieving those kind of goals and aims and it's a very so it is actually it's a very kind of you know normative model I mean obviously in terms of what it says about sex but it's also a kind of normative model in that it produces norms around the kinds of sexual subjects 
that, you know, we should be and the kinds of sexual subjects that are valued and that aren't. And, you know, and yeah, and I think I think that the point about the unstitching and and that it doesn't just happen in sex, you know, the unstitching that can happen in, you know, all kinds of areas. Um, you know, and if we want to talk about metaphors, I mean, to me, I often think, you know, if you can relate sex to, you know, it's 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 a communication between people as well as being many other things, you know, and the idea that if you had, you know, a really amazing conversation, what, that at the beginning you could sign up to exactly what you were and weren't going to talk about, to exactly the kind of revelations you were and weren't going to have, to exactly the kinds of things that between the parties involved, you know, were going to and not going to be produced, um, you know, or a party or something like that. And and I think, you know, and I always think the other side of this is a position that I do have a lot of sympathy for, um, even though I think, I suppose ultimately, like, I disagree. The other side of it is essentially, you know, the potential for harm is too much and too serious. And I think that, you know, I talked a little bit, you talked about Butler, I talked about um, queer theory before, and I think it is a valid critique of a lot of the kind of sex radical and, you know, sex positive thinking and movements that um, there isn't a real kind of coming to account with the fact that many, many people, you know, experience and have experienced sex and sexuality as a domain of hurt and trauma as well and um you know in ways that resonate not only through other sexual experiences but also resonate in other parts of their lives and so I'm always you know even though I think what I think about enthusiastic consent I think you know I was talking about you know utopian sexual projects I do think I mean, I do think it's all, I, I actually think it's really crucial that we stay grounded with that at the same time and think, you know, that, you know, like you said, this idea of unstitching, there are reasons that I think being unstitched in the domain of sex or sexuality is terrifying for many people. It is, you know, and and that's an important recognition too and that has to be a part of our politics. So, um so I think, again, as with all these things, I think the enthusiastic consent conversation is really hard because, um, you know, because I don't want to just fight with people about enthusiastic consent and be like, oh, you know, um, you're very neoliberal and you're very contractual and you need to be, you know, all about the radical unstitching and the embracing, you know, because there are real, real concerns and, you know, really valid things that people are trying to do with that and um and so I suppose I suppose I just think it's important to always recognize that and not be flippant about it as well you know even though it doesn't mean for me that I actually think affirmative consent or enthusiastic consent is that helpful um I think there is a real kind of well you know there's a real kind of question to come back on which is well you know how does any kind of alternative or model try to balance you know that potential for harm with that potential for joy that you have you know in sex you, earlier on you raised the point that we don't think based on the statistics that we have that there's actually been a drop in the prevalence of sexual violence 
even though we now have, say, 30 or 40 years of feminist activity around sexual violence. Mm. What's the implication of that? Does that suggest that actually that we have to be doing something else elsewhere that, you know, that, that like, I, I guess um, what I'm trying to get at for me is always like, maybe it's quite a boring old-fashioned conversation, but the idea of trying to, how do we relate practices of sexual behaviour and ideas around sexuality to the broader social structure, whether we want to think about that as ideology or discourse or whatever. Like, is it because we're not acting on, like, a level that impacts society enough to change these phenomena? Like, how do we account for that? I think, I mean, I think that's a really... I think it's a really difficult question. It's kind of, you know, the million dollar question. Um, I should I should preface it by saying, you know, obviously I'm not a statistician and, you know, there are various kind of discussions and things about this. Um, but I think I think it's relatively uncontroversial to make that claim. Um, I think this question I don't think it's that we're not doing things, actually. I mean, because this this is the thing. In some cases, it's about, you know, what what is being done at, um, you know, government, policy, official levels. Quite often is, I think, you know, double-sided or quite often does things without addressing, you know, kind of basic ideas around kind of gender, sexuality, masculinity, femininity. But there is a lot of work, um, and when I say work, I mean all kinds of work, you know, in activist communities, um, amongst activists and NGOs, trying to address those things. And that's where, you know, and I said way back that, you know, we're not as feminists purely oppositional, but I think in terms of attempting to change very fundamental things, and attempting to address those wider areas, I mean, I think ultimately, um, really, that still is, you know, um, even if oppositional is the wrong word, it's it's a radical project. I suppose maybe that's a better word. It is it's a radical project, and it's not a project that I think, you know, as you know, having the politics that I do, I don't think it's a project that will ever be embraced at the level of kind of, you know, government policy I mean even not even thinking about criminal justice but thinking about education thinking about social work I mean and and so I suppose I mean this is another thing that I think is important and that we lose when we start to talk about the criminal justice system or policy or when we talk in that way of kind of you know it's very simple or people just need to do the right thing is this isn't about um morality you know it's not about just teaching people in a very kind of simple sense of education is that you have a solution and you can impart it to people but it is about seeing the struggle against sexual violence as part of a wider political struggle around sex and sexuality you know a political struggle that is about on the one level changing practices changing understandings changing what is acceptable but is part of a wider practice you know and we've touched on it a little bit about actually transforming 
who we are and transforming our relations between each other. Um, and, you know, the frustrating thing about that is it's kind of in the short term, I suppose, um, pessimistic in the sense that if, you know, if you think that sexual violence is really bound up with um, our social realities, our society, you know, the way it constructs us as people, the way we understand ourselves, then in a sense, you know, it's not really a surprise that it seems very impervious to change. I mean, those are then very kind of fundamental political shifts and political struggles that you're talking about making. And I think, and I very much am influenced, I mean, by Wendy Brown here in the sense that I think one thing in terms of addressing this is that we always need to see it as a political question in the sense it is something that we are politically struggling about. And there's a tendency, I think, when we're talking about sexual violence to retreat to, um, you know, what she calls the realm of morality, you know, this realm of certain things are right and wrong and we should just know that. Actually, we have fought to change what's considered to be right and wrong, you know, and to a certain extent we have. And we are still fighting for that. I mean, the question, and that's the thing, like I don't think we should see even the definition of what sexual violence is as something that should be self-evident or obvious. It is a political struggle, you know, to separate um, sex and sexual practices from practices that are violent, or that are, you know, practices of sexual violence. And it's a struggle that means pushing, you know, and fighting. And as Wendy Brown would say, we're trying to kind of reclaim, you know, claim power, you know, and not necessarily in the sense of running government departments or policy institutions, but um, pushing for political change at a very, very broad level. Um, so, yeah, so I don't think it's kind of as simple as saying, what are we not doing? What are we addressing? But I do think that um, as an orientation, to me, it's crucial that we see these as part of a politic, you know, part of a political struggle and not as questions of kind of morality. And I guess in fairness to kind of to feminist politics is that problem of what actually is collective politics right now in contemporary capitalist societies is a question no one has an answer for, right? Like, yeah. you know, there's, like there's various different experiments that people are trying to work out about how do we act collectively and, and like, generate and, and use power, but I don't think anyone would be confident to say that they have a solution for what that means in our particular coordinates. So it's not just, like, it's not just feminist politics that has that problem. All of us have that problem. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and one thing I would say is I do think... Um, feminism taken as a huge kind of you know I suppose broad constellation of politics and political positions in the last kind of 10 to 20 years you know has been very much at the kind of center and the forefront of asking those questions um but also at the center and forefront of kind of holding itself to account you know in various ways like critiques um that have been made and have become increasingly prevalent about carceral feminism which is this idea that you can use the criminal justice system to solve criminal justice uh, to so solve social issues i mean you know at one level the existence of something called carceral feminism you know is an indictment of feminism but actually at another level it's feminists who invented this term and feminists who are attempting you know to challenge it um 
you know, also with kind of ideas about feminism and neoliberalism, you know, there was the Nancy Fraser piece, obviously, in the New Left Review a few years ago. But to me, I mean, she's also writing, you know, as a feminist and the question that she and other people are asking about, you know, how do we construct a collective politics in a society, you know, in which we are, you know, to be very Foucauldian, you know, we are very much kind of, you know, um, products ourselves of neoliberalism are really crucial questions. Um, so I guess I don't know. I just want to say that, you know, feminism is also doing this thing, these things, you know, asking these questions, pushing these things forward, you know, if it's taken as a very kind of broad politic. And I guess like one feminist insight that I've learned directly from you is the the way that feminism has shifted and opened the idea of what activity and effective activity around politics actually is exactly you know like you you recommended like a a book for me probably about 10 or 15 years ago called in spite of plato which like i've only i still haven't read cover to cover but do every couple of years dip back into (laughs) and like i think you know it's it's i can't remember the name of the author but for for those listening it's an italian feminist author who you know goes through and takes kind of like the founding myths of of uh, founding greek myths that were used in Plato and the like and, you know, retells or repositions the the females, the women in the story so they become protagonists and, like, Mm. transforms what it means actually to act. So, like, the the one that you pointed out to me, and I'm going to get the names wrong, so it's, it's, it's Ulysses' wife, isn't it? Oh, yes, yes. So, so, so it's, it's Penelope? Yes. So, yes. You, so the, the story is something along the lines of, you know, while, while Ulysses is away, um, you know, Penelope, he's assumed dead and Penelope has all these suitors and, you know, she says to, to them like, yes, yes, I will mar- remarry, but first I've got to finish some kind of, you know, could finish her knitting, I think it is. And the mm. way that it's retold is that, you know, every night she also undoes her knitting as well, so she'll never finish yeah. it, which means she gets to stay in this space like with her handmaidens and female friends and defer patriarchal power by carrying out a form of activity that is completely different from what we might think is a patriarchal or phallocentric. And like, that, mm. like as a story, that's incredibly powerful, right? Because it, yeah. you know, what, a, what would otherwise be counted as doing nothing or being counterproductive, she's actually producing space for her to live a different life. Mm. Yeah. And, and so I, I think, like, I don't know how you apply that practically, but it's a shifting an idea about what struggle is. Um, and, like, I was, I was, oh, look, I'm rambling now, so I'll pull that comment back. <laughs> no, 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 I think it is important. I mean, and that's kind of what I was saying, you know, if we look back at, you know, feminist activism, not just in the 70s, you know, but even, you know, with hashtag feminism and things, I mean, a lot of it has been about that, you know, constructing spaces you know whether those be kind of physical spaces whether they be discursive whether they be time even you know that do help to construct time and space not only to think about it but to practice the kind of new ways of being and new subjectivities and um you know and i think looked at in that way I mean feminism has a really quite amazing and rich history you know everything from like you say going back and rereading you know kind of old stories to um 
Yeah. You know. Look, I'm, I'm going to have to say this now because, like, I think, like, um, like I think right now we're in this weird moment where, like, 70s feminism gets, like, this particularly bad rap, right, and, um, and people just want to discard a lot of it. But it's kind of like, I guess, like, as daggy as things like lesbian separatism now are, are represented, I actually think that was, like, a really profound attempt of people to completely reconstruct life that did have huge impacts on society by, like, reshaping... Like I think I think the effects of, you know, thousands of thousands of women leaving heterosexual relationships, forming women-only communities, redefining what sexuality was in actual spaces and building, like, this network of publications around it radiated across society and shifted gender and sexuality pretty broadly like like there was a lot for sure you know like no i and it's often like right now it's just like dismissed as being like irrelevant or daggy throwback but i think that was like actually something and that was a really profound reshaping of a whole range of things that we live in an increased space of freedom because of oh definitely i mean elizabeth freeman actually has um who is like a feminist and queer writer. She has a book, and I can't remember the title, but it's on time. But she talks about um, the figure of the kind of lesbian feminist as being like untimely and always being kind of of the past and really daggy, you know, as opposed to like she's talking about kind of conflicts between feminist and queer activism. And I think it is a real problem. I mean, it's such a... um, you know, such a kind of important politic and such a flawed politic. And this is the thing, I think, that, you know, um, people look back and they're like, oh, yes, you know, there's so many problems. And and I wouldn't in any way want to, I suppose, recuperate second wave feminism, you know, from those critiques. But... Um, but it is, it's a, it's a particular kind of culture of legacy in feminist politics that, I mean, that has something good about it in the sense that as opposed to, you know, for instance, Marxism, you know, which will look back and be like, oh, yes, well, you know, whatever historical figure probably was racist and misogynist, but that was just a product of the time and actually he's a genius and blah, you know. Um, feminist politics is a lot less forgiving of those things, but... Um, yeah, but there is, on the other hand, particularly now, yeah, this kind of idea that you can, you know, just say our oh, second wave is like a dirty word or 70s feminism when there's so much that's, like, quite incredible. And, you know, and like I think any political practice, it's not so much that you can just pick out the good bits and leave the flaws. I mean, it's all, like, really bound up together. But, you know, there has to be a way of appreciating I suppose that bound togetherness in a way that does actually say yes this was a really transformational politics you know it's um being a really important and effective politics in a lot of ways and um a really kind of you know a very like radical and critical politic as well you know that at the same time this is again this idea of remediation at the same time you know did just take for granted or reinscribe or whatever certain other kinds of um you know had its regressive aspects that 
that are foundational to it, but how do we understand that as a history that's worth understanding rather than, um, you know, just dismissing or whatever, you know. Um, yeah. So, I no, I, I think that, I mean, I'm quite, you know, I'm quite obsessed with that period of history, like mm. the late 70s, early kind of 1980s. Because um, I, I, guess... I, sorry, keep on going. Oh, well, I was just going to say, you know, because I do think, you know, particularly in the field that I work in, like, you know, both the kind of like strengths and weaknesses of that politics still define our horizons of political possibility in really important ways. The thing that I would take from that period of, of feminism and maybe like my opinion is not the most important opinion on what we should take from that area of feminism in the Me Too time was that collective practice to transform life. You know, that like maybe we don't want, we can't repeat the, the lesbian separatist practice, but these were people radically transforming their lives in collective ways. And I think we could have a little bit more of that. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> I disagree. I don't think people should collectively transform their lives in radical ways at all. Um, no, 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 no. I think, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think that kind of, you know, um, well, it's, it's, it comes back to that kind of, you know, what's what's amazing, I suppose, about all struggle in a sense, and we were going to talk about the strike um, that we just had, you know, um, is is where people are willing to take that collectively take that leap into the unknown. Um, and, you know, and yeah, second wave feminism, you know, and beyond, actually, it's not like it just disappeared from feminism, did that in really amazing ways, you know. And that's, I think, kind of the essence to me of really kind of inspiring and transformational politics, you know. And it was also what was so amazing about, um, and it's too late, I don't know, to start this conversation about um, the recent academic strike that we had in the UK, um, because it did, it is actually, you do feel yourself changing as a person. You know, when they first announced that we were going to strike for 14 days over a period of a month, I mean, you know, I would consider myself to be obviously on the left of the union. I was just like, what the fuck? They've gone insane. You know, there's no way that we're going to be able to pull this off. And um, and also I'm going to starve. So, um, you know, but as it came up and then as it happened, what was quite amazing was that, you know, the first few days I was actually very like stressed and anxious. And it took me, you know, as, as I say to people, it took me like a few days to kind of learn to love the strike and it was this sense that, you know, everything felt different. You felt different. You know, you found yourself different as a person. You had these different relations with other people. The horizons of what was possible felt completely different. And, um, yeah, and I think, you know, that is the essence. I mean, it was obviously quite different to a lesbian commune, but it is the essence of, you know, politics, isn't it? The essence of actual, like, political struggle, to be open to the radically new. Yeah, I, I agree. I thought 14 days seemed crazy, but now it's not, right? Like, Yeah, exactly. Like exactly. What, it, what is now considered possible has like just changed in a really rapid period of time. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, completely and, you know, in a whole range of ways. I think, and again, you know, and this is the thing, like the, with the critique of speaking out, again, it's that question about, you know, as opposed to come back to what Elia Danica says about having, you know, the silence swallow us up because I think that's also 
um, my experience of these kind of moments of amazing politics, you know, whether it was things like, you know, the protest against the World Economic Forum in Melbourne a very long time ago now, or, you know. A terrifyingly long time ago. (laughs) Or the protest at the Woomera Detention Centre or this strike is they're so amazing. And then you go back to kind of everyday life and they kind of start to feel almost dreamlike. You know, they feel very different. And I suppose that's the essence of kind of, I don't know, you know, what you might call like a temporary autonomous zone or whatever. But I think one of the things, and I think they do have effects and change things, but those effects can be hard to see, you know. So it's that question, you know, that question that I was talking about before of how, you know, how you actually make change and how change continues and, you know, is really difficult. And I think, I mean, I think that's the point that we're at now in terms of the strike is that, you know, we struck for 14 days and it was amazing. And at the end, you know, there were all these things being written on blogs and I thought it too. And we were all like, nothing in the university will ever be the same again. Um, But now we've been back at work for a while and I think, I don't think that nothing's happened. You know, I think probably things are different, but it does feel, you know, it feels a lot more the same than it felt like it would is also that, you know. So it's, it's, a, it's a difficult question, you know. Um, so I guess the kind of, and that's, I suppose, also my caution with the Me Too. I look at me stitching all these threads together. My caution with the Me Too situation is you know when people are like what do you think it means what do you think is different is in the midst of things it's really hard to know you know that you can take you know you can take guesses and you know and not just guesses but you can try and like you know conduct analysis and whatever but you know what it means is yet to be determined it hasn't been decided you know and that's an ongoing process so i think that's a brilliant point for us to finish on at an hour and 40 minutes all right great great, great. so thank you everyone for listening and uh thank you tanya for giving us so much of your time for what has been a really fascinating and exciting uh conversation do you have any kind of uh social media presence or how will people (laughs) who after listening to this go i need to read everything tanya's written how do they do that oh well being very old, probably the easiest way would be to <laughs> so I mean I do have an academia.edu page that people can look up and I think it comes up because it's owned by Google. It comes up very high. I'm actually once I have a little bit of time, I'm going to shut that down because it's very, you know, exploitative and I'm going to move on to a different, better one like ResearchGate. But anyway, for now, <laughs> this is my um very rambly thing. So it's probably the easiest thing to look up is my academia, which is not completely up to date, but which does have things that I've published. Um, the other thing is just to go, this is very boring, but just to go to my work website because um, we now have a lot of open access rules in the UK, which means that a lot of publications are available from university websites. Brilliant. Um, I, I will link to that in the show notes. So it'll be super okay. easy for people to access. All right. Well, <laughs> well now, now, now we can end on me being very embarrassed. So, well, that, that's um, that's perfect. Um, thank you very much, Tanya. That that's been really brilliant. Um, everyone else out there, you've been listening to Living the Dream. I hope you have enjoyed this conversation. Um, please hit us up on Facebook with questions, debates, problems, or you can get at me on Twitter at with sober senses. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day.